Listen to the word of God. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. That's the reading of God's holy word. Well, if you, as you've observed by now, I hope that the letter uh, to Galatia is an extraordinary, extraordinarily logical argument Paul is making about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Um, who we really are and who we really are not. And how the Christian life uh, can't be lived the way it's meant to be lived unless we recognize the great truths buried in the gospel and remind ourselves of those truths over and over and over and over again. And any deviation, any deviation from the principle of the gospel, no matter how slight it might be, from the lines that Paul has drawn for us in the letter so far, will end in disaster, spiritually speaking. We've seen that there can be no real church of Jesus Christ where there is no fruit-bearing. And there is uh, no fruit-bearing unless there is repenting. And that's called cross-bearing. And there can be no repenting without the experience individually of the free and the full forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The church, as we know, is, after all, what? A spiritual community. It's a spiritually created community. And as a result, things should be happening here that cannot and will not happen anywhere else. And if they're not happening here, then we need to do some serious (laughs) self-reflection. Jesus said unequivocally, the spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So the text this morning is meant to suggest what should be the normal practice of the church. So we're not talking about extraordinary Christians here. We're talking about normal, ordinary Christians. This should be the normal experience of the church. And that is a burden-bearing community of faith. A burden-bearing community of faith. And I emphasize practice of the church. Because what we're talking about here requires practice. Now, for many of us, I believe, we are like troublesome piano students. Troublesome to their teachers, at least. You reach a point as a young pianist. Now, I know I'm not a pianist. I was a string bass player. But, uh, and so I apologize for the piano, piano players among us for wandering into your territory. 
But, uh, you know, you reach a point as a young pianist where you have to practice the harder parts. In order for your finger dexterity, for example, and strength to improve sufficiently that you might imagine yourself one day playing Ravel's Scarbo, perhaps the most difficult piece of piano music ever composed. So whether you use Hannon's 60 exercises or Czerny's etudes, it takes practice. And the practice needed to do what Paul is describing here is called repenting. We need practice repenting, cross-bearing. In other words, only repenting people are fruit-bearing people, and only fruit-bearing people can fulfill the law of Christ, as it's described here for us. And oh, by the way, every Christian is meant to be a fruit-bearing Christian. The centerpiece of this whole paragraph is found in verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now that's simply a continuation of what Paul already began back in chapter 5 when he said, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when asked to state the most important commandment, Jesus replied in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said, on these all the law and the prophets hang. The two tables of the law, the first four commandments, vertical, the last six, horizontal, relational. So, love God and your neighbor, love your neighbor as you already love yourselves. Let that be the standard by which you measure your love for your neighbor. And in John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And of course, love is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. So the Bible gives us many different angles to determine what love is, what love looks like, what it reveals, how it's recognized, what it produces in the life of the people of God. And here Paul uses burden-bearing as the angle through which to examine what love is, as a way of expressing love in real action, in the particular instance of restoration, and in general, in the lives of other people. So this text is telling us, first of all, what it is, what it isn't, who should or shouldn't do it, and why don't we see more of it? What is burden-bearing? What is its relationship to restoration? Who shouldn't attempt it? And why they shouldn't attempt it? And those who should do it, why they should do it? And why aren't we seeing more of it in the life of the body of Christ? So all through this passage, we're going to be asking, directly or indirectly, why Paul uses restoration as the key example for a demonstration of a true experience of God's love. Why does he pick this as the illustration of what it means to know and experience God's love? And if we can't do what he's telling us we we should be doing, what is that telling us about ourselves? What is it telling me about myself if I find this an impossibility? So first of all, what is burden-bearing and how does it relate to restoration? 
Is this just another law? I thought I was freed from the law. And now he seems to be saying, oh, one more thing. There is this law, burden-bearing, restoration, and loving your neighbor here. Well, remember, the Mosaic Law was never meant to be treated as a way of saving yourself, but as a way of exposing your need to be saved. And that the supply for your saving comes from God and from God alone, not from yourself. That's what the law was meant to do. It's impossible for you or for me, it is impossible to fulfill the law of love because we have Christ living in us. If we didn't have Christ living in us, it would be impossible. Because after all, the love we're called upon to display is the fruit of someone else, the Spirit, not myself. So if I've been crucified with Christ, which he says we have in chapter 2, verse 20, and Christ now lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me, that means it's possible to do this in a way that honors Christ. And the logic is quite simple. It's all by faith. To fulfill the law of love is a call to faith. I'm united to Christ. How? By faith. I receive the Spirit of Christ. How? By faith. And the Spirit produces the fruit of love in me by faith. So I then fulfill the law of Christ by faith. By faith. By faith. You see, unlike the law of Moses, which crushes me, this enlivens me by the Holy Spirit. So we want to do what we've been empowered to do by God. Why? Because of gratitude to God for what He has done for me. Even while a sinner, Christ died for me in order that I might be made the righteous of God in Christ. So that since now I live, I desire to live for Him and not for me anymore. Paul makes this argument again and again and again in his letters. So what is burden-bearing, and how does that relate to restoration? Well, I want us to pay careful attention to this paragraph. This is a very important paragraph. It's been so often misunderstood by so many people. Notice, because every time you go over a passage like this, the first thing people want to talk about is, well, what if he does that? Or what if he's done that? Or what if she's done this? What if she's done that? Let's talk about the things they might have done, these sinners we're talking about who need restoration. Well, don't you notice it's quite interesting here. Paul says nothing about the sinner. He says nothing about the sinner or the sin. Nothing is being said about the person needing to be restored. You'd think he would, but that would be inconsistent with the gospel message he's giving us. All he tells us about this sinner is, this person is in a trap. He does not go into lurid detail about what the trap might be. So watch out for the trap, Michael. That's not what he's talking about here. He's in a trap. In other words, this paragraph isn't really about the person needing restoration. It's not about that person. It's really about those who are doing the restoring. In other words, those who are doing the burden-bearing. 
He simply says in chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, use your imagination. Pick out the worst thing possible. It doesn't matter. The issue here isn't the sinner. The issue isn't the particular sin. It's what you and I do for the sinner. That's what he wants to talk about. And that's what makes it such a difficult paragraph to live. I wish he'd just talk about the lurid sin involved. But he wants to talk about me. He says, if anyone is caught in a sin, when a believer is caught in a sin, he or she is, I like to think of it as a a broken instrument that needs repair. Now, any musician knows if your string breaks, what do you do? Throw the guitar away? You replace the string. You repair the instrument to make it function as it was designed to function. And remember, after all, he or she is God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good music. To create the tune he or she was designed to create. You see, it's His art in us, designed for specific purposes, to make specific music, if you will. And you know, by the way, not all of us make the same kind of music. Aren't you glad for that? So it's broken. The idea of caught here is that something, some sin has gotten the upper hand in a person's life. And we're not to ignore that. And we're not to, try to, not to destroy them. But address it and restore it. In other words, don't ignore, restore. Don't look the other way, restore. And the word burdens here is a word that means a heavy load. Practically speaking, Something that is impossible to bear alone. So here the effect of the trespass is that something that ultimately does what? This is what sin in the Christian's life always does. It does what? It steals your peace. It steals your joy. It steals your patience. It steals your love. It damages your effectiveness in serving Christ. In other words, it evacuates your life of the fruit of the Spirit. So that's how we should think about it in the life of the person needing restoration. It's any sin that weighs someone down with guilt and self-condemnation. Again, this text is not about the trespass, but the, what the trespass does to the trespasser. And is a test of our spirituality in responding to it. Now that expression there, bearing one another's burdens. In the original text, it, it seems to place emphasis on reciprocity. And suggests that this is something we, were, we are to regularly do for one another. For one another. It's reciprocal. For one another. It isn't just that you need it. I need it. We need it. It's to go on back and forth among ourselves. In other words, think of it this way. You too 
may have a candid camera experience. Remember candid camera? When you least expect it, someone's going to show up and go, you need restoration. So let's stop looking at everyone else and remember one day when you least expect it, you're going to need restoration. And that's Paul's point. It's a reciprocal relationship we're meant to bear with one another. Burden bearing is clearly identified in Paul's thinking with restoration. And it's essential to repair the instrument so that it makes the kind of music it's meant to make. In other words, we are to relieve some of the burden from the one caught in in sin and to assist in the repair. Notice what I said. We are to relieve some of the burden. And that Greek word for restore there means like uh, it's used for mending a fishing net or setting a broken bone, making it functional again, repairing it. And the emphasis here is initially placed on a person caught in a sin, but but it applies to the general experience of believers everywhere who are faced with seemingly unbearable burdens. Ever had that experience? And what happens? The law of Christ must kick in. For example, your burden, your unbearable burden, may be the loss of your husband or your wife. It could be depression. It could be economic catastrophe. It could be uncontrollable children. This becomes an unbearable burden for you. You cannot bear it alone. And yet we often turn a blind eye to it, failing to see the need for restoration because that person's peace and love and gentleness and kindness, all of the fruits of the Spirit are being taken away from that person. And they need to be restored to that person. And the only way that can happen is through restoration, burden bearing. And you know what? To do this requires that you actually get close to the person. (laughs) You can't do this through email. You can't do it even through a telephone call. You ever heard the expression, you don't know what I'm going through till you've walked a mile in my shoes? Well, that's precisely the language Paul is using here. To do what he's talking about doing means stepping into the shoes of the other person. Because how are you going to relieve the weight of the person from over here? You have to become under the person and share the weight with them. So you're going to have to actually get a little close in order for the weight to be redistributed. Now, I know that's a shocker. Some people don't even like to shake hands, let alone get too close. So we'll talk about that in a minute. In other words, you can't live at a safe distance from these people. In fact, if your life is being lived at a safe distance, and believe me, I am a person who likes safe distance. I really do like safe distance. Why? Because it's so painless. (laughs) Right? We all avoid pain. And you get too close, it becomes uncomfortable, and you start feeling the pain, and you don't want to feel the pain. You'd rather be at a safe distance so you can go on with your life. 
Oh, we'll pray for you, brother. <laughs> great. Prayer is great. But you're going to have to get a little closer than that. If we live at a safe distance, which we all are inclined to do, you cannot bear the burden and you cannot participate in the restoration that's needed. And it isn't saying, get this, it's a very important principle, isn't saying that we remove the burden in the sense of taking it all away. That's another mistake too many people make. This is the messianic complex kicking in. You got a problem, I'll take care of it for you. I'll bear your burden for you. No, you cannot bear the burden yourself alone. You cannot remove all of the burden. We're not told to do that. We're told to share in its bearing, not assume complete responsibility for removing the burden. And a lot of people get that way. So their whole lives are wrapped up in removing the burden. Well, there are a lot of reasons people do that, and they're mostly not good. So you can't remove all of the burden. Don't even try. After all, you know there is the Holy Spirit, there is Christ, and there is the rest of the body of Christ here. Okay. So how is this burden bearing uh, as illustrated in restoring to be done? How is it to be done? Well, the key word there is gently. He says, in a spirit of gentleness and meekness. Gentleness and meekness. That's another problem I have. Gentleness and meekness. So, you know, man, oh man, I'm really feeling bad right now. But you know, I've got to go back and go, well, that is the fruit of the Spirit, right? So again, I can't make it up. I can't pretend. I can't work it up. It's got to be the fruit of the Spirit in me and through me to other people. So I need to ask God for more of His Spirit, right? So rather than do what we're inclined to do, gossip, tear down, we are to gently restore the person. Luther said, and now you've got to figure, if you know anything about Martin Luther, this guy was hot-headed, tough as nails, suffered fools, not at all. Right? And this is what Luther said in commenting on this passage. He said, run unto him, reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. Wow. Additionally, there's a, a warning attached, and this applies to all burden bearers, but especially to those working through restoration. He says, but watch yourself unless you may also be tempted. Now, of course, the question is, tempted to do what? Well, I believe the answer to this is directly connected to who should not burden bear. All you eager burden bearers out there, you eager restorers, be careful here. The answer to that question, tempted to do what, gives us an idea of why some shouldn't do it. So I want to answer that question. So burden bearing, we now know what it is. We know what its relationship to restoration is. And now we want to ask the question, who shouldn't be doing it? Who shouldn't be doing it? Get this now. 
even though they may be the first to volunteer. Go figure. The answer to this question is found in the beginning of verse 26 of chapter 5. He says, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. Now, I like to think of this as sort of bookends, all right? You know those little things you have on your shelf that hold the books together? Well, verse 25 is one bookend, and verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6 is the other bookend. So the activity in between is bounded by these two ends, if you will. They hold it together so that God's goals are accomplished, not my goals are accomplished. Paul is telling us here that there's a temptation to become conceited. Why? Why is there a temptation to become conceited? Well, think about it. The whole letter to Galatia is about, among other things, what? The danger of self-reliance. The danger of self-dependence and self-deception. Self-justification. The danger of self, 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 self. Rather than reliance upon Christ. Reliance upon Christ. Reliance upon Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. In other words, we all tend to deny our neediness. We tend to deny our neediness. We imagine that we're strong when in fact we're very, very weak. Whether we want to admit it or not. Someone once said to me at a Bible study, some scandalous, something scandalous that had happened, I don't know, probably a preacher. But anyway, we're, we're most prone to scandals, I tell you. Anyway, so he said to me in the middle of this Bible study, I would never commit adultery. It's just not possible. And he actually said it with a serious look. I mean, I was supposed to take it seriously. And I said, well, Chuck, you've just never met your Bathsheba yet. You know, there's one out there for you. Oh, yeah. So be circumspect. Be cautious. The devil is a roaring lion going about to destroy. And let me tell you, he's got a Bathsheba for you. You see, that's the posture of self-reliance. And that posture is what only the flesh can produce. And that is sin management. It's sin management. You're not getting to the heart of the matter here. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Sick, desperately sick. Who can know it? Only God knows it. And all it can produce is the works of the flesh. So the person that says, I would never do that, is simply doing what? Telling himself how good he is, how strong he is, compared to those weak people out there who fall prey to these things. See? So that just brings about pride, self-exaltation, further self-deception. And that's rooted in the word conceited. This is what Paul is trying to get us to think about. It's conceited, which is linked to what? Conceit is linked to a state of hunger. A state of hunger. You see, conceited people, prideful people, are very hungry people. 
Don't ever forget it. They're very hungry people. Now, they're not hungry for the food you eat with your mouth, but the food you can only get from the praise and approval of other people. You see, the word suggests here the hunger or desire for glory, for praise, approval, honor. Now, I disagree with some who think that there are two states, provoking and envying. There are two separate and distinct states, provoking and envying. When they look at this text, this is what they conclude. There are two separate types of people. Are you an envier or are you a provoker? You see, so I can identify myself as one or the other. And I don't believe that's what the text is telling us at all. I believe that both of these are possessed by the same people at different times. In other words, there aren't provokers and enviers. It's a reciprocal thing that goes on in our lives continually. We move from being a provoker to being an envier on a constant state. In other words, the conceited, those desiring glory, praise, and honor for men are characterized by what? Provoking and envying. They do both of those. They go back and forth. They vacillate between the two. So that suggests what? That the conceited never get full. They're never full. They always want or they always need more. Their appetite is never sated. And the presence of a sinner needing restoration is a tasty meal. I'll say that again. The sight of a sinner needing restoration is a tasty meal for the conceited. You see, when they get honor and glory and praise and approval, they provoke. And to provoke means what? To take charge, to take over, to challenge. And when they don't get it, they act out of envy. In other words, they figure out a way to get it. And they'll never be able to get enough of it. You see, the plate of the conceited is never full. So why do they do it? Because they have a false view of themselves. They are self-absorbed, and as a result, they are blind. He says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, they're self-deceived. This is, after all, what it means when we talk about the deceitfulness of sin. I love the way John Newton put it. Those who are self-deceived, he said, they have an imperfect acquaintance with the deceitfulness of their own hearts. Every day we are to explore and be reminded of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And this is an opportunity, burden-bearing and restoration is a unique opportunity to do some serious self-reflection about the deceitfulness of your own heart. So this person's always making comparisons between themselves and everyone else to accomplish the task of what? Achieving superiority, looking better than that. In verse 4, it's described as the result of comparing oneself to someone else. And you know when you compare yourself to someone else, you either come out the winner or you come out the loser and you start trying to figure out who, how you become the winner. That's your whole life. You've got to win because you've got an insatiable appetite for glory, approval, and praise. You've got a lot at stake in the game. And what are the symptoms? How do I know if I'm, I'm struggling with this whole need of conceit? How do I know? What are the symptoms of it? Well, <laughs> judgmental. Judgmental. After all, your approval is based on comparisons. 
So you have to conclude, I'd never do that. And that is simply the expression of pride, isn't it? Or I like this one. Well, at least I never did that. So you feel superior. That's the person referred to in verse 4 where Paul says, not to measure your progress by the progress or lack of progress in someone else. Because that just feeds our hunger for honor and glory and praise and approval. He goes on to say, then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor. You see, there is a boasting that's based upon comparison, which is nothing more than pride and arrogance and superiority. Rather, if you're going to boast, Paul is telling us, or better, if you're going to take pride in the progress that is in you, okay, there's nothing wrong with that but not based on a comparison to someone else. You've heard the expression, he takes pride in his work. Now, is that person proud? No. No. He takes pride in his work. As a Christian, to take pride in your work is to treat it as something worth doing right and doing well to the glory of God. And the one who made my hands, the one who gave me my own intelligence, the person who ordered my life in such a way that makes it possible for these things to occur in my life. But not because my work is better than someone else's work. You see, other people are not the standard by which I measure my progress. Notice what he says in verse 5. For each one should carry his own load. That's the proper perspective from which to view ourselves and to boast. But you're asking yourself, wait a minute, isn't Paul contradicting himself here? Because back in verse 2, he said, bear one another's burdens. Now he says, each one should carry his own load. What is, he, what is he telling us here? Well, he isn't contradicting himself. Why? Well, notice the two different words he employs here. In verse 2, the word means a heavy burden or weight practically impossible for someone to carry alone. That's the word he uses. But in verse 4, he uses a different word. And that word is more akin to a kind of backpack. Okay? A small pack. A small thing. In other words, you see here there's a dangerous assumption at work in the heart of the conceited. And what is that? Everybody started at the same place. This is a truth that really has helped me a lot. When I look at someone else and I go, well, he'd been a Christian for 25 years. You'd think he'd be over that by now. And I go, well, how do I know that that person wasn't abused as a child, raised in a substance abusing home, suffered incredible terror growing up, and has carried a lot more baggage or weight than I could have ever imagined having to carry? They have a different kind of baggage than I do. I have baggage, but mine isn't theirs. So you hear people saying, oh, he's been a Christian for how long? And he's still doing that. He's still struggling with that. He did what? Listen, our attitude should be, he 
had a lot more stuff in his life to work out than I did. And you should praise God for that. Maybe that person did suffer terrible abuse, drug, alcohol abuse, taken advantage of by men, used by men. And all of that comparing does is breed arrogance. You see, Paul is saying we each carry a different load on our backs. Remember that. It'll keep you from conceit and pride, from comparison. Unfortunately, all these disqualifiers are often reflected in the church, aren't they? In fact, most of these disqualifiers are reflected in the people most eager to play the role of burden bearers. That's kind of scary, isn't it? You see, the person who's so eager to be a burden bearer, and really, if you look at the qualifications, they really disqualified to be burden bearers, are really only looking to get justice in the area. They ask themselves, what's the payoff in restoring this person? Well, first of all, I'm going to look like a hero if I get this person's life together. And oh, by the way, we'll get justice here because somebody needs justice. Or at least my version of it. You see, they're not interested in carrying some of the weight and restoring the other person's lost love, peace, joy, kindness, gentleness, patience. They're actually deriving pleasure from seeing someone stew and get what they deserve. And they're saying inside the whole time, I never liked that person anyway. So if they're wrong for the job, and only we know who we are, Who is right for the job? Well, the key to the answer is found in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, You who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Who's Paul referring to here as you who are spiritual? Is this some special group of super saints who sit on the first row in church? Surely if you're on the back row, you can't be a super saint. (laughs) Who are these super people, the spiritual people? Well, they aren't super saints. They aren't an elite squadron of army rangers, spiritually speaking. You see, he's already told us who these people are. In chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In chapter 5, 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, those who are spiritual are who? They're actually Christians. They're alive by the Spirit. They're those who are walking in the Spirit. They're those who are being led by the Spirit. They're those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And especially meekness and gentleness. And we saw who those people were last week. And who are they? They are the repenters in our midst. They are the repenters in our midst. They are the self-crucifiers among us. And that's supposed to be everyone who calls him or herself a Christian. Ask yourself the question. Are you known as the most spiritual person in this church? Or are you known as the biggest sinner in this church? The biggest sinner. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. That didn't mean he went about trying to prove it. But a sinner is known for what? Repentance, 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 repentance. Am I known as the 
self-acknowledged sinner who's daily in need of forgiveness and isn't afraid to admit it? Ask yourself this question. Would anyone in this room know you for being a repenter? Or would they only know you for your performances as a non-repenter? I don't mean a nice person. I don't mean a friendly person. Happy-go-lucky. Nothing ever seems to bother them. Successful business. Nice wife. Obedient children. No, no, no. We're not talking about that. You see, churches are full of people like that. And in fact, many of them have become leaders in the church because they are those who seem to need no repentance. Isn't that awful what we've done? We've made the person who doesn't repent the leader of the church. I want repenting sinners. That's what I want because that's what I am, a repenting sinner. Am I perceived as a self-sufficient person? Do I exude that scent I have it all together, why don't you? Or do you see yourself as the chief of sinners? That's the attitude I'm meant to have. That's why I need Jesus so much. If I'm not a repenting person, I don't need much of the cross, do I? But if I am, that means I need more and more of the cross. You see, only needy people can restore other needy people. Needy people need people with the real fruit of the Spirit, not the counterfeit fruit of the Spirit. You who are spiritual are ordinary, repenting sinners who run to Jesus for forgiveness routinely, and you're known to be that kind of person. You see, we can't be people who think we're something, Paul says, when we're nothing. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need to know deep in our hearts that without Christ, we're nothing. And whatever I have, it's because of Christ. And the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Am I one of those people? I love the way John Newton put it in a letter to a Christian friend. He said, the old weather-beaten Christian." who's learned by sorrowful experience how weak he is in himself and what powerful enemies he has to grapple with, acquires a tenderness in dealing with bruises and broken bones, which greatly conduces to his acceptance and his usefulness. Weather-beaten Christians. You see, only the humble can restore the humbled. Only the humble can restore the humbled. People who totally rely on Christ are humble. And humility is the twin of gentleness. Pride is the twin of conceit. So we know what burden bearing is generally and in specific as it relates to restoration. We know who does it does not qualify to restore and bear burdens generally. Well, lastly, then, why don't we see more of it? Well, let's start with the easy reason first. In the case of restoration as a form of burden-bearing, for some, it is simply fear. It is fear. You're afraid to go to a brother or a sister in Christ whom you see caught in sin. You're too timid, you say. But usually not too timid to tell someone else. 
which is called gossip. But if you're afraid, like me, if you're afraid, remember the words of Isaiah. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of men, who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Fear men? Why? And secondly, this reason why, we don't see more of it. That's simply because there are more sin identifiers than restorers in the church. There are more sin identifiers than restorers in the church. I tell you, my senses are finely tuned to identify sin. How about you? I mean, I've got laser beam eyes when I see sin like that. And the problem is the church has too many of us. Too many sin identifiers, not sin restorers. And always the laser beam is aimed at someone else, never at myself. So am I a skilled identifier but a poor restorer? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. And lastly, burden bearing, especially in restoration, has to be cultivated in the church. In other words, it requires all of us collectively to begin to be honest repenters. Honest repenters. For loss of face, reputation, whatever, we promote only the appearing perfect among us. And we leave repenters behind. Want to spoil a good party? Well, start sharing with people your struggles. That'll ruin a good party. Unless your struggle is physical. That's okay. But if you start sharing your struggle spiritually, that's not okay. Everybody folds their napkins and says, where's dessert? Right? So, for loss of face, reputation, whatever, we promote only those who appear perfect in our midst not repenters. And without an experience of deep and continuing forgiveness in our community, we become an unforgiving community. And by unforgiving, I mean generally looking the other way. And that's why we're afraid to admit the truth of who we are. People will look at me differently if I do. So forgiveness, which requires humility which is cultivated daily by crucifying the flesh, all of that has to be cultivated. So we're back to the practice of burden bearing, aren't we? We don't see more of it. Why? Just for the same reason the average pianist never becomes a great pianist. The average musician never becomes a great musician. Why? For want of practice. The dull, boring, everyday routine of practice. I can say that with some experience when it comes to music. (laughs) I like the way Cornelius Plantinga puts it. He says, our church communities ought to be cities of refuge for sinners, busy with the traffic of forgiveness, busy with people learning the craft of forgiveness, ordinarily by getting apprenticed to a master forgiver or two. The idea is that saints ought to teach forgiveness to saints in training. In the church, the communion of saints, we should be rehearsing the forgiveness of sins like pianists, practicing the hard parts over and over till we get them right.
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've called us to be burden bearers. You've called us to be repenters. You've called us to be those who, by virtue of our repenting and our desire to walk in your spirit, be prompted by your spirit, that you will produce the fruit of the spirit. And only with the fruit of the spirit can we be the kind of restorers we're meant to be. So we ask this morning that you'll take your good gospel and bury it deeply in our hearts again. Remind us again and again and again that we are to think not much of ourselves because we are, after all, nothing. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything. Everything we pretend to be, we know, and deep down inside, you know the truth about us. And so we need to acknowledge that before you. Acknowledge that such that others will feel free to acknowledge their own failure, their own sinfulness, their own forgetfulness before you. And in doing so, we reveal each other, to each other what it means to walk in the Spirit and to walk in Christ. We ask that you would do this in our lives and in our church and that we might be changed and transformed according to the image of our Savior Jesus and that you might receive glory, praise, and honor for you alone are worthy of praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name.